Well, it's always a pleasure to uh, fill in for Jeff and Monty. Uh, my name's Chad Vincent, and I'm the community group pastor here at Fellowship Bible Church. Uh, to get me know a, a little bit better, uh, we had a, uh, I have three boys, and we, one of my boys had a game last night, and sometimes I work the clock at the games. And so, uh, tight game, everybody's into it, real intense, we're down by one, six seconds left in the clock, you have one job, I have one job. Start the clock. And I got so involved in, in the game, and there's six seconds left. We're down by one. And, I, and they get the ball to about half court. I realize, oh, no, I forgot to start the clock. The GM goes crazy. Everybody goes loud. I hear one voice. Scorekeeper, you had one job. <laughs> so if you're from Blackman Middle School Day, I'm sorry. I wouldn't try to rob your team. I actually forgot to start the clock. I forgot my one job I had. So a lot of times preaching is like that, right? You got one job. This is my one job. And I haven't forgot to start the clock. Okay, I started the clock. I haven't forgot it. But that was hilarious last night. I was laughing inside, but it's, my wife was just crawling underneath the bleachers. I told the, the, the lady next to me, I said, I think I'm going to have to get like, security to walk me out of the gym. Man, middle school basketball is intense. It's the worst feeling ever when you're sitting there, you know you messed up and you can't do nothing about it, right? Well, Merry Christmas. I'm glad you're here and I'm glad to be with you and glad to fill in this role. It's, it's truly an honor. On Christmas Day, 1863, the Civil War was raging around him. Henry Longfellow, who's a poet and a literary critic, was 57 years old and already a widow. He had six children. And outside, his country was raging on the Civil War. And as he sat in the hospital room with his oldest son, who was almost paralyzed from a gunshot wound, he heard the bells ring. And the bells rang, and they rang one thing, peace on earth and goodwill toward men. But Henry was confused. And so he grabbed a piece of paper on Christmas Day and wrote a poem you probably know very well. The poem's entitled, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. Because as Henry, as Henry heard the bells on Christmas Day ringing, peace on earth, goodwill to a man, he couldn't help but internally wonder, where is that peace that the bells are speaking of? Where is that goodwill the bells are chiming about? when my country is at war against each other and I'm 57 years old and I'm a widow and my son is laying in a hospital bed and he might be paralyzed. So in order to deal with that, he wrote these words. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth and goodwill towards men. And I think if we're honest this morning, we can resonate with Longfellow's sentiments. As we walk around this world, we see hate prevailing over love. We see injustice prevailing over justice. And we not only see the presence of evil, but if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of times we think evil is winning. 
And Christmas is a joyful time, no doubt. It's a joyful celebration. But we're dismissed if we don't acknowledge Christmas can be a tough season for many. Hopes, dreams, expectation, and longing. People grieve and lament on Christmas over loved ones that aren't with us anymore, over children that are estranged, over families that have health issues. And that's the tension we wrestle with. One of my sons was to say, hey, Dad, I'm beginning to learn. Just because you do the right thing doesn't mean you get what you want. I said, that's a good word, man. That's a good word. See, just because you do the right thing doesn't mean on the side of heaven you get what you won't. And so this morning as we come to our text and mainly we come to the Bible, we see the followers of Christ wrestling with this on the Emmaus Road after Jesus is crucified. They're walking and the verse says they were sad. They were walking and they were sad. And Jesus appears to them and Jesus begins to tell him his story from Moses and the prophets because they were discouraged, they were disappointed. Things hadn't worked out like they thought they had worked out. And it left them in, the, in their head asking a question that you and I ask every day of our lives, at least I do. Will the sovereign king, Jesus, do what he's been promised to do? Will he really do that? Oh, we can come to church and we can read our Bibles and we can sit here and go, yes, yes, yes. But in our hearts of heart, that thought lingers because all around us, we don't see the kingdom. And this morning, I want you to turn to 2 Samuel 7. And I want to provide a lamp. I want to provide peace. I want to show you through 2 Samuel 7 that the answer is yes. The sovereign king can do what he's promised he will do. Even when the world goes dark, he always provides a light. He always provides a lamp. So turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And as you, as you go there, let me set the stage up for you real quick. David is coming to the throne. He's the king of Israel. And for the first time in a long time, he finally has what he's always wanted, peace finally, right? There's no more war. And so he begins to look around, and he's in his palace. And looks around and sees Jesus, uh, the, the Spirit of God, rather, the, the, the uh, Shekinah glory is in an ark. God's presence is in a tent. And he's in a palace. And so he's conflicted. What do I do? So logically, he goes, I want to build a house. But Nathan the prophet comes to him and says, no, no, David. You won't build him a house. But I've got another promise for you that God will fulfill in you and through you. And that sets the stage for 2 Samuel chapter 7. And the promise that he gives us is a Davidic covenant. See, he comes to him and says, I'm going to make you a promise, David. And say, you and I know this because here's the deal. As we sit in these chairs today, we've had people make promises to us. 
And the, the greatest pain and the greatest agony is when people do what? They break them. They don't fulfill what they said they would do. But this is not God. See, when God comes and makes a promise, he calls it a covenant. He calls it a solemn oath. See, a covenant means to literally cut. And in that day, they cut animals apart from each other. Would spread animals out, one part here, one part there, and you would walk through the, the animals that are cut. And then you would get to the end, and then you would have a meal together. This was serious, because what you were saying as you walked through that cut, that, those animals, you were saying, if I don't fulfill this promise, may that, meaning cut, meaning killed, be done to me. That's the magnitude. This is not no flippant promise. It's a solemn oath. This is a serious, real deal. And so when he comes to David and offers his solemn oath, his covenant, it's not to be taken lightly. And there are several um, covenants in the, in the Bible that we see. And the beautiful thing about these covenants in the Bible is a lot of times it's not up to the individual person. God makes a covenant to himself. You call that unilateral covenant. You call that unconditional covenant. And this covenant to David is a unilateral, unconditional covenant. Meaning he's saying, David, I will fulfill this because of who I am, not who you are. And you see this couple examples, the Abrahamic covenant. Came to Abraham, promised what? Land, seed, blessing. Did God do it? You bet he did. There's David. He's got land. He's got seed. He's got God's blessing. No way to covenant. He says, I came to him and said, I promise I'll never flood the earth again. And so what do you put? A what? A rainbow. And you and I today, every time it storms and rains, we get nervous and scared and check our phones and make sure we're not blown away. But God says, I'll never flood the earth again. And so you have his promise. That's a covenant. So you panic when the weather's raining? Relax. You got a covenant. The Jeremiah covenant, the new covenant, it's a great covenant. He says, once you come to Christ now in the New Testament, my spirit will now not dwell in a tent, not dwell in an ark of a covenant. My spirit will reside right here deep inside of you. I'm going to give you myself, my spirit. And every time we come, when we come to Christ, that's what happens, Right? We feel convicted of our sins. We begin to grow. We feel encouraged. We feel motivated. That's God doing a work in us. So therefore, when he was the promise of God, he's saying it will happen. The promise of God will happen. Look at verse 12 of chapter 7. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, that means you die, <laughs> I will raise up your offspring after you. That's going to be Solomon, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Go down to 16. And your house, your kingdom, shall be made sure forever before me. 
See what God is doing there? He comes to David and said, I'm going to make you a house. House is a pun. It's a play on words. Has one word, has double meaning. Yes, a house of cedar, wood, stone, a palace, but he's going deeper with David here. He said, I'm going to build you a house. And what that means, house, is I'm going to give you offsprings. I'm going to give you descendants. I'm going to give you a lineage. I'm going to give you a dynasty. So he comes to him and says, I give you a house, but not, he didn't stop there. And those offsprings, that lineage, will rule on a throne. Catch that word, throne. Catch the other word, forever. So I'm just not going to give you Solomon and stop there. I'm going to give you a lineage of kings and keep on and on. That's the Davidic covenant. And it will rule forever and ever. And so it makes us ask the question. So one day, a Judean king is going to rule this world and set up his kingdom forever. Who is that Judean king? And that's why Christmas is so important. See, that's why Christmas is so important. Who is that Judean king? And what did he promise to do? And then will he do what he's promised to do? And the answer is point one, yes. Because you know why? It's in his character. It's who he is. And he can't go against his character. Look at the progress, number two. It's interesting as you go move to point two, first and second um, Samuel is followed up by what book in your Bible? Tell me. First and second Samuel, you got what book next? Kings. See what he's doing? Now you'll see the progression. He's going to show him, he's going to show us, look what I'm doing. I'm going to give you a progression of kings. I'm going to start out with David. I'm going to go to Solomon. And then about a century, I'm going to give you a dynasty of all these kings until what happens in 722. The northern king gets captured by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom, Judah, gets captured by the Babylonians about 590. What he does in the promise is he goes, the kingdom's going to split. I'm going to split the kingdom. Israel, Judah, I'm going to go with Judah, and that's going to be my seed. And I'm going to follow Judah all the way. And the progression until you get to who? Until you get to Christ. And that's why the Davidic covenant is so important. Because you not only have the promise, you have the progression. Just so you don't think I'm uh, pulling this out of my own head, turn with me to uh, verse 19. And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is the instruction for mankind. And this is why you go to seminary right here so you can understand this stuff. Because I read that and I blow over and go, whatever that means. But you, you go to seminary, you read your Bible, and you get the good stuff for this, this point right here. It's my seminary education blood for you right here, okay? This is why you become a biblical nerd right here. Okay, because this word instruction in the Hebrew is translated Torah, it's translated law. I'm not smart to figure all this out. So I stand on the shoulders of Dr. Kaiser and Dr. Allen, who are Hebrew scholars. What he's saying right here, he says, I'm giving you a charter for humanity. 
I'm giving you not just an instruction, I'm giving you a mandate. Some versions have a question mark by that. They call it, uh, let me make sure I say it correctly to you. They say that it's a, um, is this the matter of man? Kaiser and Allen go, uh-uh, that's cheap. It's not no question mark here. It's the instruction, the Torah, the charter. It's an affirmation. It's a declaration. It's going to happen. And so what it comes to is this verse announces, as if it were not a small thing, what God's going to do, he's going to extend his promises from David's dynasty into the future. All of humanity is going to lead inevitably to the rule of Christ on earth, and this is the destiny and the dynasty and the fulfillment of all the prophets. It goes back to this. And so when this king comes, he better be from David, a descendant of who? David, because this will instruct all humanity. And this king, when he reigns on this throne, he'll have the legal authority to govern what I say. He'll be sovereign. He'll be a sovereign king. And that's the beauty. If you don't think that's good enough, turn over your, your, uh, your Bible to Matthew. If that doesn't excite you enough this morning and make you know the promises are real, look at the first, the very first verse of chapter one in Matthew. Because if you're like me, you get the genealogies, you go half asleep. So-and-so, we got so-and-so, and so-and-so, and got so-and-so, and by the third so-and-so, I'm already asleep and done. Right? You get bored with you. What's the purpose? I don't get it. It's like my kid's dad, I'm bored. What's the point? The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. What is the next four words? The son of David. And when the Jews read that, because Matthew was saying, this Christ will be the king. Where did they get that from? the son of David. That's why it's so important, because it's a covenant. It's a promise he, he gave centuries ago. That don't get you fired up? Let me give you some more. Look at, look at uh, 20, verse 20. But as he considered these things, he, meaning Joseph, he was a righteous man. He was going to divorce, calmly divorce Mary, not throw her under. She was pregnant. He thought, who has she been sleeping with? It wasn't been me. So he's going to dismiss her. He's a righteous guy. And Joseph, the angel appeared to him in a dream. And Joseph is the son of who? Son of? So he would have been Carpenter Joseph, he could have been King Joe. What do you think about that? How many times about disappointment? I could have been a king, God, and now I'm a carpenter. If Israel's still in power, that's King Joe. Good old King Joe. I love King Joe, right? He could have been the king. And he was just a carpenter. And he said, son of David, do not fear. You want some more? I got some more for you. Luke, let's go to Luke. Keep going right. I'll be here all day with you. Don't worry about it. We got a whole, we got time. Bonnie and Jeff don't care. We're good. All right. So Luke chapter 1, 31 through 33. Comes to Mary. The, the angel comes to Mary. Look, 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great among you. 
and he'll be the son of the most high. That's his divinity. See, he's going to be God. He's not just an average man. But he also is going to be, and the Lord said, we'll give you the throne. Uh Uh-oh. He will give you the throne. Uh Uh-oh. You excited yet? He will give you the throne of David. Wake up. Yes, David, this is exciting because you're seeing the prophecy being fulfilled. That's his humanity. See, good old King Joe. He's in the sign of David, the lineage of David. So Jesus comes up now. We call that hypostatic union. Now you've got this, this, this man that's like he's, he's God, fully man, but he's also fully God. Yeah, he's son of the most high, and he'll sit on the throne of David. That's his humanity. Isn't that exciting? And that's the progression of what happens when he comes, and he'll reign forever. And so he is the legal and see, your words and works don't necessarily matter. It's your, your genealogy. Do you have a lineage back? Your genealogy is significant. You can do all the words and works you want, but you need to be of God, of the promised seed. And what they're screaming about is, what he's so excited about is, this is him. He hasn't forgotten us. He didn't forget to start the clock. I forgot to start the clock. He never forgets that stuff. And so will God do what he's promised he would do? The answer is yes, because you know why? He's already started it. This plan's already in motion. He's already got it going on the tracks. You're just coming along and joining him. So you've got to look at that or you're going to look out here in this world and you're going to be discouraged. You're going to give up if you don't come back to the scriptures and come back to saying it's Christmas, but it's hard. It's difficult. I need something to ground me. The promise grounds you. The progression grounds you. And the purpose grounds you. Because then he says the purpose is, if that's not enough for you, the promise, the progression. He says, now here's my purpose. Verse 26, back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 26. Here's the purpose. And your name, stay with me, and your name. What is your name? Your name is your what? Reputation. Your name is all you got. If you give your name to something, what's that mean? That's who I am. He says, and your name will be magnified forever. He's not just talking about David. David's just a type. He's pointing to someone who will be much, much greater than David ever could be and can rule, rule the earth better than David. He's greater and he's better because he is the real king. And when he says the word name, your name will be great, that's what he's talking about. That's my reputation. And all of the scripture points back to who? You're in church? Ah, I just can't get on Jesus. Always answer Jesus. Okay? It always points back to Jesus. All of scripture, Old Testament, anticipating Jesus, New Testament, explaining Jesus. Glorifying Jesus. It all goes back to him. That's the purpose of the narrative. 
And he begins to explain that to us and grabs us and says, I'm not done yet. That's why I call him Wonderful Counselor. You know why I call him Wonderful Counselor? Because he rescues fools like me from myself. That's why he's wonderful. Do you know why I call him Mighty God? Because he's defeated the grave. He's defeated sin. That's why he's mighty. You ever tried to defeat the grave? You ever tried to defeat sin? Can't do it. So he's not only wonderful, he's not only mighty, but he's the everlasting father. Why is he the everlasting father? Because he's adopted us and given us spiritual rights. He's made it possible for us to know God. That's exciting. That's purpose. That's meaning. And we have all the rights and privilege of a son because of what he's done for us. Why do you call him Prince of Peace? Because he's given us peace that we could never earn, never deserve, and never achieve. And when we get that, your heart has to stir. Your mind has to be blown away if you're a logical thinker. This is, this is boom, mind-blowing. That's what he does. And he's not through there. In Corinthians, it tells us he is the yes of God. Of all God's promises, Jesus is the yes. And God at the end says, you know what God says? Amen. He's the yes of all God's promises. And God says, amen. The purpose always brings us to the narrative, always brings us to Jesus. And that's the beauty. So let me ask you a question. Will he do what he's promised he said he would do? And the answer is yes. You know why? Because the whole entire Bible is about him. It's not about you. It's about him. You're not the main character in the story. He is. And when we get that, the entitlement goes away of our hearts that hold us in captivity. You're not the key of the story. You're not the most important thing that ever happened to God. That's a good thing. Because you're like me, you can't even start the clock at the game. You don't have to start the clock. That's where you are. You're a fool. That's what he's saying. And that's freedom. Because when we grasp that, we get that, we can get our eyes off of ourselves. And that's what David does next. He comes to this prayer. And watch what David does. Don't blow past this and just go, what, what, what happened? Stop. Read it. Verse 18 he comes to him with a petition. Then David went in and sat before the Lord. Read it again. Then King David went in and he sat before the Lord. What is the basic bottom line meaning of prayer? It is to change your perspective. Your perspective is wrong, and so you go to God and you pray, and you say, God, will you change my perspective? Because when I look out there, I feel like you're being long gone for years. I feel like, based on my circumstances, I don't know where you've been. I don't know if you've been there. Because I'm discouraged, and now I'm disappointed, and it hasn't been a very good year. Matter of fact, have been a very good decade. So David, when that happens, if you're like me, 
in your heart, when that happens, you go through a process. I'll be just real transparent with you. When I go through that process, I think certain things. And my thoughts go, well, man, that stinks. That's not going to work. And then my mind starts racing about, watch this, how I can fix it, how I can solve it, how I can get out of it, what I can do. And all the what ifs start running around. Do this, do this, do this. And then I go to the next, I go to feelings. And I start freaking out. I start panicking. I start going, oh, no, I don't know what to do. So I better just do something. And then I go to the last one, actions. You know what I do? Control it. Control the narrative around me to get what I want. If I don't get what I want more, I'll bear down more on the control. And that's how we naturally respond. Maybe you're different than I am. That's my natural default mechanism. When things go bad, I look at the world, I try to solve it, I try to fix it. I don't care if you're talking about marriage, kids, in-laws, job, money, whatever. And then I go to panic, fear, not sure what to do. And so I begin to freak out a little bit, right? And then I bear down. Watch what David does. See, what, what David does, he says, no, 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 no. When, when you go there, what I want you to do is I want you to sit before the Lord. And now watch this uh, redundancy. Watch how many times from verse 18 all the way down to verse 28, he mentions this phrase, O Lord God. Verse 18, who am I? Oh, Lord, God. Verse 19, in your eyes, oh, Lord, God, you have spoken. Verse 20, and what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, oh, Lord, God. Verse 21, doesn't say anything in verse 21. Verse 22, therefore, you are great, oh, Lord, God. Verse 24, and besides and establish for yourself your people to your people forever. And you, O Lord God, became their God. Verse 25, O Lord God. Verse 27, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant. Verse 28, and now, O Lord God. If you were an English teacher, what would you do to, to, uh, to Samuel? You would take an excellent paper and write what? Redundancy. But see, he's trying to say, what does that phrase mean? Oh, Lord God. That means God is in control and God is sovereign. And David goes to him and says it over and over and over and over. And why do you think he says it over and over again? Because he has a hard time believing it. Like who? And so he says it over and over and over again. Oh, Lord, you are God. That means if he's God, who's not God? You can raise your hand. Who's not God? See, we're not God. So you were never made intended to control your narrative. That's never how you were intended to live, to control your narrative. You'll, all, you'll have zero peace if you try to control your narrative. 
you'll never, ever, ever find peace if you try to control it. You gotta come back to God and say, oh Lord God, you are the sovereign king. You are the sovereign, not me. And so what'll happen, what's so beautifully is, will he do what he's promised? Will the sovereign king do what he's promised? Yes, because you know why? He's in complete control, and guess who's not? Me. And I don't know about you, but when I take control of my life, it never goes well. It might go well for a week or so, but it, and I never have the Advent season this week. I never have peace, if I'm honest. I always have anxiety. I always have stress because it's so much more about me than the sovereign king. Because I just think, I just work harder. Because you know what? I'm busy. And what we do, we work harder. And that gives you no peace. That gives you more tiredness. You're just tired all the time. And then when you're tired, guess who's affected? The people you love the most. Go, I never see you. I never can be with you. Because you're always so busy running. And so verse 29, is the, is, as we close, is the so what? Verse 29 is the beautiful so what? And now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant. Because what does a sovereign king want to do more than anything? Did you see it? What does a sovereign God, who's so gracious and so kind and so generous, what does he want to do more than anything? Did you, did you, did you see it? He wants to do what? He wants to bless you. And I'm not talking about new cars and more money. and I'm not talking about that stuff at all. He wants to give you what money can't ever buy, no matter how hard you work and how frugal you are. He wants to give you more than the relationships with other people. That, they, can't, they can't solve it either. Nobody can fix you. He wants to bless you. This Advent season, he wants to bless you. Please hear me. With peace. He wants to bless you with peace. I don't know where you are this morning, but can I encourage you to stop running? Get off the treadmill. Quit saying every time somebody talks to you, you're busy. Everybody's busy. Why don't you say, I'm trying to slow down. I'm going to slow down. There's no badge of honor to be busy. The badge of honor is to have peace. Tell somebody this morning, I got peace that passes all understanding. Now, I bet people want to get to know that you. They will spend time with you because you'll have something they long for. So I heard the bells on Christmas Day. Henry didn't stop there. Listen to this. The bells rang more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to man. Can I give you a secret at the end, if you haven't read it all the way through? Because of Christ, guess what happens? We win. Don't lose heart. We win. And we rule with the sovereign king. You don't win, I don't win on our own merit. But we win. We have victory. And that's better than the Titans winning. It's better than the Vols winning. It's better than the Tar Heels winning. It's better than the Tigers winning. It's better than the Sooners winning. It's better than Vanderbilt winning. 
Yep. You win, man. That's exciting. You win at this thing called life. Not because of what you've done, but because of what he's done. So as we move towards time of so what, can I ask this question to you? Would you go before God like David did and would you sit before him this Christmas season and would you say, God, as I'm sitting before you, what don't I believe about you? Why do I not believe you will fulfill your promises to me? That's your question. Why don't I believe that? that you would fulfill your promise to me. What is it with me?